I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. How much of your portfolio is in Chinese stocks and bonds, and why does that matter? China is the world's second biggest economy. Its growth over the past three decades has been exceptional. Investing in a rapidly growing economy is typically a smart move, both for the lender and for the borrower. But is that the case with China? The Chinese government restricted capital inflows because of stability concerns. Money that flowed in could also quickly retreat. There were also concerns that issuing stocks to those outside China would cede control to foreign investors. For international investors, there are concerns about the Chinese government taking moves that would limit access to their investments or reduce their returns. So what is the stance of foreign investment in China? The answer provided by the Global Capital Allocation Project, a research lab based at Stanford University and Columbia University, may surprise you. My guest today, Professor Matteo Maggiori, is one of the directors of the Global Allocation Project. He's a professor at Stanford University and a recipient of the Fisher Black Prize, which is awarded to an outstanding financial economist under the age of 40. Matteo, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thank you for having me on the show, Michael. Matteo, it's great to have you on. As you know, the famous economist John Maynard Keynes wrote about the extent of international investment before the First World War, saying how easy it was for an English gentleman to, in his words, adventure his wealth in the natural resources and new enterprises of any quarter of the world, and share without exertion or even trouble in their prospective fruits and advantages. What was the rationale for this statement by Keynes for the English to invest abroad before the First World War? England back then was the key country in the international monetary system. Uh, so it was the world banker. So you know the, the big safe asset at the time were um, bills like short-term uh, securities denominated in pounds and traded in London. Think of them a little bit like U.S. Treasuries today for the current system. And the British financial system uh, took those funds and you know, recycled part of them abroad uh, in investments, in risk investments. Uh, that's what a little bit what Keynes was talking about. Of course, on top of that, there were traditional motives of uh, diversification, uh, capital searching for um, high risk return um, trade-offs all around the world. And this was a period um, of um, you know, free uh, capital mobility, which what, what do I mean by that? It was a period where you could invest anywhere. There were very few restrictions from uh, moving capital across countries. So when Keynes wrote this in the early 1920s, about 100 years ago, it was actually elegiac. He was looking back at a period where there was, as you say, free capital mobility. But then that fell apart after the First World War. What's the situation today? Is it more like what Keynes wrote about the First World War or more like the period after that when free capital mobility fell apart? 
So there are actually some parallels with, with today, uh, where again, we're experiencing a period post-1973 where more and more countries have removed barriers from trading capital internationally. So U.S. residents can invest in many countries around the world, and they, and they do. Uh, and also the U.S. is now um, at the core of the international monetary system. So it has taken on uh, the role that England played uh, before 1920s, being the world banker. Uh, the rest of the world buys safe assets in the U.S. Today they are uh, short-term treasuries, for example, denominated in dollar. And um, US, the U.S. financial system recycles some of those funds abroad in very, you know, in risky investments of various of various types. Uh, of course, there are some differences. Uh, one major one is that England run um, a current account surplus. Uh, the U.S. runs a deficit. Uh, but uh, you know, being a world banker is about borrowing safe and lending risky. So it's about the gross activity. Uh, this, of course, has an impact on the net because, on average, you make money out of doing this, uh, but it's not mechanically um, required to run a deficit. Um, and this is going to be something that we, we're going to touch base when when we talk about China. Uh, China is also a big, a big current account surplus, but it would like to play a bigger role uh, as a provider of safe assets to the rest of the world. And we can we can there's ways to think about that uh, that we can explore. So as you and I teach in our basic classes, Matteo, when you run a current account surplus, you're necessarily on net, as you say, lending to the rest of the world. And when you run a current account deficit, you're necessarily running on net, um, borrowing from the rest of the world. But as you mentioned, it's not just the net amount, but the gross amounts as well that matter, correct? Absolutely. So the gross amounts are much larger than the net amounts. And um, you know, they're not necessarily in the same assets. So uh, the reason why economists think of the U.S. as a world banker is because the assets and the liabilities are very different. It looks like a bank. It has very uh, safe assets, like short-term assets uh, on the liability side, but it has long-term, potentially liquid assets on the asset side. And you wouldn't want to net the two. Uh, there, there's interesting things that happen to the net because the bank on average makes money. Uh, but, the, you know, there's a lot of risk involved in taking on this activity. Uh, and, you know, gross capital flows have been an important topic, of, you know, to understand what's happening to the financial system of the last 20, 30 years. And that's something that was pioneered by uh, Philip Lane and uh, Jean-Marie Malesi ferretti and some path-breaking work they had that uncovered that data, right? Absolutely. I mean, they, they did fantastic work documenting all of these gross capital flows and what was happening at, you know, for many, many countries in the data. So going back to the comparison with um, the pre-World War I period when there was high level of capital mobility, when it was very easy to borrow and lend abroad, today is also an era when it's relatively easy to invest abroad because of technology that transmit buy and sell orders instantaneously and the interconnectedness of the world, which gives us the ability to learn about conditions almost anywhere. And also the fact that many countries have dismantled rules and regulations that inhibited international investment. So the conditions in the world look pretty much like our stark economic models that include very few frictions that prevent people from investing anywhere and assume that people have lots of information. But does the actual outcome of the world, Matteo, mimic what's found in the models? Well, you know, 
when you look at the data, and this is a, what you know I've been doing in my own uh, research work, you find um, a, a number of differences with at least the, the very traditional uh, models. Uh, so l- let me mention some of the most famous ones, which uh, were established uh, you know, well before I started doing research. Probably the most uh, famous is what is called home bias. It's the idea that uh, countries overinvest in securities issued by their own domestic firms. And then the counter thing, what theory would predict is that people should invest sort of the same all over the world, not, not tilted towards their own home domestic markets, right? You can take a very simple benchmark, which is what economists call CAPM. It's a fancy name for the following idea, that you should buy everything in proportion to what exists around the world. So if uh, China is a big chunk of all assets out there, you should have big investments in China and the U.S. and so on. When you, what you find in the data is that uh, countries tend to overinvest compared to that model in their own domestic um, assets. Another you know, very prominent one is what is called the Lucas paradox. And it's named after the economist Robert uh, Lucas. It's the idea that capital, you would think that capital will flow towards countries that have high growth prospects and low stocks of capital because that's where the returns are high. And you know, emerging markets might be the typical country that we have in mind that has those characteristics. But in the data, uh, capital doesn't flow nearly as much as we would have uh, predicted towards those countries. Uh, another effect that is closer to my own work, so together with Brent Neiman and uh, Jesse Schreker, uh, we documented what we call the home currency bias. It's the idea that countries tend to overinvest in bonds issued in their own currency even when they invest abroad. So to make it concrete, uh, Americans, even when they invest abroad, tend to buy a lot of bonds in dollars, uh, even when they're buying bonds issued in, by European entities, for example. Uh, again, the more natural prediction would have been that since most bonds issued by European entities are in euros, uh, the Americans will buy those. But actually, they turn out to overinvest in dollar bonds. And that's because dollar bonds are being issued outside of the United States, so there is that opportunity, correct? Absolutely. So for many major currencies, what you will find is that uh, particularly large firms will tend to issue in multiple currencies. So uh, um, some American firms will issue in euros, and Europeans will tend to buy those. Uh, Some British firms might issue in Canadian dollars, and the Canadian investors will tend to be big in those bonds. Uh, so there's a lot of sorting according to currency in all of these world investments. So it doesn't look like our models. Um, we've been talking about investor decisions. What about the countries that are receiving funds? Are there clear advantages? Like when British investors, you know, what Keynes was writing about, they funded the constructions of railroads, canals, and industry in countries like Canada, Australia, Argentina, and even the United States in the late 19th century. Are there disadvantages to countries receiving capital from abroad as well? Well, there are some very obvious advantages, which you mentioned. Uh, Foreign capital can be used to fund uh, productive assets domestically, so production. Uh, It can also be used as a substitute for domestic capital. So you might want to have your domestic residents uh, free up some of their investments, substitute it for foreign capital, and invest abroad so that they can get some diversification. Um, but unfortunately, there are a number of ugly properties of foreign capital, to put it, to put it that way. Uh, what are those ugly properties? Well, the major one is what economists call uh, sudden stops. Is the idea that foreigners tend to get scared 
and move their capital out all of a sudden. And unfortunately, receiving a stream of capital inflows over time slowly and then a big lumpy uh, reversal of these flows tends to be very deleterious to the economy. It can cause a financial crisis. It's a little bit about the speed of adjustment. It's the fact that it goes out altogether that makes it very difficult for the domestic banking system and the economy to adjust to this sort of uh, sudden movement of capital out of the country. And uh, so a lot of you know, policymaking, particularly in emerging markets of the last 10, 15 years, has been finding ways to deal uh, with the sudden withdrawals of capital. I think when the economist Rudy Dornbush introduced the term sudden stop, he was talking about when you're in a car accident, it's not the speed that hurts you, it's a sudden stop. Absolutely. So what's a particular example of a sudden stop, Matteo, that you know we can think about where we actually saw these sort of destructive properties of a quick um, outflow of capital? Well, I mean, you know, emerging market like Brazil have had a number of those, for example, where capital comes in and then uh, the foreigners might get scared either about uh, political risk or some particular choices of the government in either monetary policy or a loan default risk, and they pull out. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's not about the destination country. It's about where the source of capital comes from. The typical example is what, uh, you know, in the, in the financial press is called the taper tantrum. Is when the U.S. first announced that they were going to uh, stop or reduce potentially quantitative easing, financial institutions in the U.S. got scared and they started repatriating their capital very suddenly from uh, the investments they had made abroad. Uh, and that caused, um, you know, some ripple effects around the world. So when this happens in a country, interest rates rise, the currency could fall quite a bit, which makes the people in that country poorer with respect to buying foreign goods. There could be sort of a seizing up of financial markets. So it leads to a downturn in very severe economic conditions, correct? Correct. I mean, you know, one thing that we see, for example, now is capital, uh, particularly in the bond market flowing out of China, now, for the China's case, it's quite different in the sense that foreigners were a small part of the overall market in China. So the system is able to absorb uh, a moment where the foreigners are taking their money out of their bond market. But, you know, foreigners were something like 3 or 4% of the bond market. But had they been 20 or 30%, uh, the same, you know, the same proportional withdrawal of capital would have caused much more havoc to the domestic economy than what we're seeing right now. Well, let's turn to the case of China. When the Chinese economy started to open up to the world, it enjoyed sustained high growth rates that were unprecedented. And people at the time spoke of red chip stocks, which were seen to be very attractive because of the rapid growth of China. But the Chinese authorities limited investment inflows. Why did they do that? For the reasons that you were talking about in terms of fears of instability? So China is a very interesting case because it touches on many of the topics that, that we discussed. Uh, they've been opening up uh, slowly. Uh, in my view, trading off uh, financial stability concerns. So the idea that if you let the foreign capital come in too quickly, uh, exposed when they like, you know, there might be a sudden stop. So the foreigners might want to take their capital out. That can be very expensive. So you might want to do it uh, very gradually. And China has been uh, strategic in this, in the sense that they first uh, let in foreign financial players that are understood to be less likely to withdraw the capital quickly. Think of it as 
official institutions, insurance companies, or maybe the endowment of a university. These are players that are very long-term. They're not the typical hedge fund or mutual fund uh, that might face redemption and liquidate very quickly. And then more recently, it actually opened up more and more to that kind of flighty capital. And right now, for example, you know, we are observing outflows uh, from Chinese markets uh, for all of 2022, continuing in 2023. Uh, and that's an interesting situation. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in over, over the course of this year. In terms of what you were saying before about China imposing regulations and rules so it'd be harder to invest, that's at odds with its other goal of becoming a big player in the international monetary system and perhaps having its currency, the renminbi, replace the dollar, right? Absolutely. So China has a stated goal uh, of wanting to rival uh, the U.S. in the financial sphere, particularly when it comes to uh, being at the center of the system. And, you know, many countries have that goal. Uh, Many have had in the past, and the dollar has been very difficult to to displace. Uh, To think about why, in my view, it has to do with the financial stability concerns. So you would like to have a great reputation as a country that can provide safe financial markets for the rest of the world to invest in. But when a crisis comes and the foreigners, for example, want their money out, there's going to be a short-run temptation uh, to, in some sense, prevent that, to avoid uh, these liquidations. And that's a big concern right now with, uh, with China. If you ask investors what is one of the big concerns they have is, well, I can bring my money in. But am I sure that I'm going to be able to get it back whenever I want it? So that means they don't bring the money in to begin with, right? Because of those, those concerns. Absolutely. They're going to do it slowly. And uh, you know, China is building, is trying to build this reputation. So every time there is a crisis, if you keep behaving, the investors will trust you a little bit more and they'll bring more capital in into the future. But it takes a very long time to build a reputation like the one in the US, um, you know, where the rest of the world is reasonably sure that they can get their money back and there's not going to be default, there's not going to be imposition of capital controls or anything else uh, in a crisis. That's a stellar reputation, but it's very hard to both achieve it and maintain it. Matera, I know you've done a lot of work on offshore markets. Can you very briefly describe what those are and how that relates to China? For sure. So the offshore markets are places like the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands. They're essentially jurisdictions where uh, companies or sometimes governments, but mostly companies, register subsidiaries for the purpose of issuing securities. Um, so, for example, the Cayman Islands attracts a tremendous amount of bond and equity investment, but it's clearly a small island with a few billions of GDP, uh, everybody understands that the capital is not staying there. It's getting to the Caymans and then going somewhere else. And one of the big questions has been, where is that capital going? So a lot of my research work uh, together with Antonio Coppola, Brent Neiman, and Jesse Schrager has been trying to document this systematically uh, at the world level. And it turns out that China plays a major role in this. Uh, This is not something that is uh, entirely commonly understood. Why? Because it's changed dramatically over the last 20 years. So if you were looking at the data 10 or 15 years ago, uh, China would have been a minor player in these offshore, offshore jurisdictions. But when you look at the data today, China has a dominant role. Uh, it accounts for about 60% of uh, equity outstanding in these jurisdictions and about 20% of the bonds. So it's a really major player. So this is your work with the Global uh, Capital Allocation Project that I mentioned at the outset. And also at the outset, I asked the question, how much 
of your wealth is invested in China. And you're finding through this by digging deeply into the data that it's actually a lot more than what people realize, correct? Yes, because most of it, it's indirect. So if, if you go back to a discussion we were having about investors being worried uh, about onshore markets in China, so bringing their money into China, well, one response is Chinese firms are issuing in these offshore markets and investors are buying the securities there. And if you look at American investors or European investors, uh, they're big holders of these securities, both, both bonds and equities. And inequities is largely the tech companies. So think of it as Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. Uh, in bonds, it's not just the tech companies. It's also a lot of state-owned enterprises of China. So, you know, this use of the Cayman Islands also has an aspect of being a tax haven. What's the problem with a tax haven, Matteo? So there, there are several issues. One, one of the most prominent is, of course, taxation. Uh, so a, a typical example of that are American companies that tax invert into Ireland uh, to minimize uh, their corporate taxation. A, a second problem that is distinct is uh, has to do with regulation and the ability to protect the investors uh, in these offshore jurisdictions. That's probably more prominent in the case of the Chinese uh, technology companies. So they're setting up in the Cayman Islands, not so much to minimize uh, what they pay in corporate tax, but to bypass a Chinese regulation that, as you mentioned at the very onset, uh, would prevent foreign ownership of strategic assets. And you know, China thinks of all of these technology companies as strategic assets. And that's why they're there, but it creates an issue of, are we sure that when an American investor buy, buys a security in the Cayman Islands, it actually has the typical rights that we associate to a, with a bond holding or with an equity holding. Um, that's an open question, and there is reasons to doubt that. So the rights would be like, you know, the right of corporate control and things like that, but they actually don't have that. You um, mentioned in your research uh, shell companies, which are called WFOEs, W-F-O-E's. Can you describe a little bit what those are? Absolutely. So this is going to take a minute, but bear with me. Um, the way to think about a group like Alibaba is um, you and I, as American residents, cannot invest directly in the company in China. The Chinese regulations don't allow for that. So what Alibaba is going to do is it's going to set up first a shell company in the Cayman Islands. Uh, that one has equity uh, listed in New York that you and I can buy. Uh, how is that company related to the operating company in China? Well, um, there will be a third company in the group uh, called a Wufi, a wholly foreign-owned enterprise. That's a company in China that is licensed to operate in a sector that is not strategic and therefore can be fully owned by foreigners. Uh, for example, consulting is a typical sector. And the, the problem is that what they're going to implement is a structure that, without getting into the details, from an international accounting standard principles, allows the company in the Cayman Islands to tell me and you that when we buy its equity, we're buying a share into the entire group, including the operating company in China. At the same time, because none of these contracts are actual equity, uh, the company in China can tell the regulators that he has no foreign equity holders whatsoever. And the problem is that how well this structure is going to work, uh, it's an untested um, hypothesis. So it sounds like the Chinese authorities wouldn't be so happy with this either because Alibaba or other countries are using it to get around the restrictions that the Chinese authorities wanted to put in place as well. 
Absolutely. So China has progressively uh, tightened its grip uh, on these technology companies, and these thrashes have come under pressure from uh, precisely the you know the crackdown on on tech. Um, so far, you know they've not been wiped out, so they've been enforced. But China has put, for example, a lot of restrictions on new companies using these structures uh, to list abroad. Uh, in some sense, the existing ones uh, were somewhat stuck with on both sides um, because there are now billions of dollars worth of this um, outstanding and it's not so easy to unwind them. And for the investors, we already mentioned you don't have a voice in the company because you don't have any voting rights. Um, also, I guess the Chinese government could stop recognizing the rights of these investors. Are there also national security concerns about funding China? So uh, and the one that you mentioned that is most prominent is both having a voice in the company and also in case of bankruptcy, what exactly are your legal recourses to get hold of you know, liquidation value from the company? Uh, those are you know, open questions. If you actually looked at the prospectus when this company is listed in New York, if you read their disclosures, one of the things that they're going to disclose is precisely what you said. They're going to say, you should be aware as an investor that the Chinese government might deem our financial structure invalid, at which point you do not have a claim on the actual operating company in China that pretty much is the entire value, and you have an empty shell in the Caymans. Um, in terms of the national security uh, concerns, I mean, that's a broader conversation. Both countries, as you know, have had um, a lot of political pressure that surrounds data, information sharing, access to the books of these companies. And, you know, these international offshore structures are part of that. Uh, certainly the U.S. Had, has wanted, for example, access to the accounts of these companies uh, and being able to scrutinize uh, the accounts if they're listed in New York. Well, Matteo, we've come a long way from talking about this simple CAPM model with perfect information and a lack of frictions. And your very important empirical work in digging into the data, I guess, was the source of the decision to award you the Fisher Black Prize, which is very, very well deserved. And I appreciate you joining me today to talk about these issues, things that are important both from individual investors' points of views, but also national points of views as well. So thanks a lot, Matteo. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.